Today we're in our series. I'm just going to jump right in because I don't really know how to make a funny intro to this. Um, this is our counterformed series. Today we're talking about chastity in our sexual lives. So just as a disclaimer, um, if you're here and you're with kids and they're like grade school, like 14 and under or 13 and under, um, I just we're going to be talking about things with honesty today that you may not feel is appropriate for them, and we respect that. If, if you need to head down to kids' ministry uh, this morning, I'm sure that'll be okay. Um, but we want to have an honest dialogue about this area of life. In the first service, my parents were here, <laughs> and so that was awkward. Um, I felt like I was having the talk with them. And I don't even remember if we did have a talk at one point, but I felt like I was the one now parenting my parents and having this talk. Um, but it's something that is near and dear to the heart of God, and it's also part in our culture of how we are going to be counterformed into the image of Christ. Um, just before I start, I don't know, Brenda, could you grab me some water? I have dry mouth particularly today. I'm not sure if that's because of what we're about to talk about, but oh, we should just keep worshiping and I'll, I'll not talk. But um, So in this series, I just want to do a little bit of review for you. This, my heart today is this is not maybe going to be the same kind of message you've heard on sexuality, boundaries, all of that kind of thing. Um, this is not a message about do this and don't do that and stop doing this and whatever. This is actually, I just feel God's saying, hey, we need to, we need to climb up to 30,000 feet here and see some of the larger influencing principles that are at work in our lives, in our teenagers' lives, in marriages, in grade school kids right now, so that we can have a better understanding of how to distinguish God's good boundaries from what our culture is filling our world with. And so, thanks, Brenda. This is gonna be a little bit of review, but just to provide context, I wanna blaze through this pretty quick. Um, I'm gonna just throw up that one diagram. We've used it before, but um, as a church, this is the direction we're heading, that Jesus is our model, that his life in how he lived, how he walked in the kingdom on the earth is our model. In scripture, there's more, but the three dominant characteristics of his life are number one at the top there, that Jesus prioritized spiritual vitality and intimacy through time with the Father. Number two, through spiritual practices, Jesus trained his character by submitting to the rule of God over every part of his being. This counterformed series is about the spiritual practices that Jesus and the uh, authors and, and men and women of the New Testament used to counterform their character. So sometimes we get caught thinking that Jesus didn't have to grow in character or in any way. Of course he was God fully and fully man. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. There's a, a, a pathway and a progressive nature to that says that Jesus grew in stature 
before God and man. So spiritual practices were used by Jesus in his life to, to grow his character. And number three, Jesus walked in authority and power through the gifting and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. All right, so Jesus is our model. How are we going to actually be formed in, into his image? So scripture says it's clear that the heart of God for your life and mine is that we be formed into the image of Christ. So Jesus is the model. His heart is that we take on the very likeness and character, kingdom presence of Jesus. So how does that happen? Three practical ways. Number one, we come under scripture. Jesus himself came under scripture. And this is a big one because uh, the temptation in our culture right now is to say, no, scripture is subject to my interpretation and what I would prefer it to be. Jesus did not, uh, even as God, he did not actually sit in that posture of sitting over scripture. He allowed scripture to be the thing that formed his life. Number two, he used spiritual practices, which we're talking about today, the, the practice of chastity. And number three, Jesus himself relied on the Holy Spirit's gifting and power. So these are the three ways that Jesus modeled life in the kingdom. This is how Jesus lived in the kingdom on the earth. And his invitation to us is to walk on the earth in the way that he did. That's how he manifested the kingdom and we're called to imitate him. So then why is it so hard to grow spiritually? Why is it so hard to feel like uh, spiritual growth is possible? Why do we, why in your heart, some of you, when I say the, the heart of God is you become like Jesus, you go, oh, that's impossible. Why is it so hard? Why can't we just grow spiritually the way we numerically grow in our age, right? We don't have to do anything about it. We just live. But that's not the way the kingdom works. The Bible tells us that there's a specific reason that being formed into the image of Jesus is so hard. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. It's because there are powerful counterforces at work that have been working in your life and in mine since the moment we were born, powerful counterforces that have had more impact and influence on your life than Jesus. That's just the reality for all of us. Ephesians 2, this is Paul exposing this truth that as much as we want to grow, in our spiritual life, as much as we want to become like Jesus sometimes, we actually face these three powerful forces at work to strip away and undermine the work of God in our life. Ephesians 2, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. You could circle or underline that word world. Obeying the devil Circle or underline that, that's force number two. So force number one is the world, force number two is the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. That's force number three. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So there's things uh, weighing on us. There's things pressing on us that are shaping us and forming us, not into the image of Christ or Jesus, same person, um, 
but into the world's image, into the image of the kingdom of darkness. I love how Paul continues though, because that's not the end of the story. Like, oh, you know what? Just suffer through it and, you know, take your lumps and, 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 and hobble your way through life. No, he says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. So this, what some people call this unholy trinity, the devil, the world, and the desires of our own flesh are at work to shape our lives. That's why it's so hard to grow. That's why we can't passively grow in our spiritual life without activity. Because these things are shaping and forming our life. I wanna, today we're gonna key in on Paul's definition of the word world there. That word in the Greek is cosmos. And just like in our English language, words have multiple meanings. So if I use the word ball, right? It can mean a ball, like, you know, a basketball. Or it can mean that we're gonna go to a ball and dance, something I've never done. But, um, or it can mean we're gonna have a ball. We're gonna have a great time. So three meanings, so cosmos is the same. First meaning is just simply the earth or the universe, or the physical matter around us. The second meaning of cosmos is humanity, for God so loved the world. He's not just talking about God loving the mountains and the streams. He made God loves humanity that's on the earth. And the third one, which is specific to what we're talking about, is the world meaning us the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. I've given you three additional sort of meanings to help develop this out for you. Dallas Willard says it's our culture and so social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. So culture and social practices. Jerry Brashears, a theologian and, uh, and professor says, the world is Satan's domain where his authority and his values reign. Though this deception uh, makes that hard to realize if you are of the world, then it all seems right. John Mark Comer, another pastor from Portland says, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good versus evil. So when Paul is talking about the influence of the world on us as a shaping force, he's talking about the system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are now normative and institutionalized all around us. In essence, you could picture it like the atmosphere. You're breathing it in every day. You don't even know it but you're breathing in the values and ideas and ideologies and systems of the world every day. And that's why it's so hard for us sometimes to distinguish between the heart of God for something and the world for something because it's so normative to us. It's so mainstream and everyone's talking about it. The apostle John talks about our relationship to the world in this way. First John 2, do not love the world nor the things it offers you. He's not talking about people, don't love people. He's not talking about the planet. 
He's talking about these social constructs, these ideas and values and morals and practices, the social norms of the world. Do not love those or the things they offer you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So then I just have quickly highlighted three kind of predominant areas that John is breaking down. The world, so these social norms, these ideologies, these convictions, you could even say, in the atmosphere around us involve a craving for physical pleasure, that sexual temptation, and our body as an idol for pleasure. So our culture says right now, your body is something that needs to be satisfied that your desires in your body, your sexual urges and your desire for physical, sexual gratification and pleasure needs to be met. That's what our world says. Our world says that, um, as John is saying, there's a craving for everything we see, greed, envy, jealousy, restlessness, dissatisfaction, consumption. Our world system says you'll never, you, you never have enough. You need more and bigger and better. You know, uh, your marriage may not be satisfying you now, so you trade it in and get a better one. Our world is driven by this idea that freedom and fulfillment lie in more. Just take your, just categorize it. More material stuff, a bigger boat, a bigger cottage, a bigger home, better car. I just like, like Bluetooth in my car. I mean, that's like an honest prayer of mine. <laughs> I feel guilty about that sometimes, but Lord, I just want a car with Bluetooth one day. Anyway, it's so ghetto having to put my Apple iPods in while I'm driving. Anyway, um, then third, this pride in our achievements and possessions, independence, self-sufficiency, admiration of others, security, comfort. Our world, our culture, especially our Western one, idolizes independence. Independence is not a gospel reality. The pursuit of independence is not a gospel heartbeat. The craving for the recognition of others, recognize my credentials, recognize my skills, recognize my charisma, recognize my, my value. All of that is coming from the world and that's fully in the church too. We idolize pastors that have charismatic and powerful speaking gifts. You do, I do, we're tempted to recognize that area of their life, to admire what they can do and what they can achieve. And John is saying that's part of this system, this atmosphere that we're breathing in every day and we don't know any different. So to put it another way, the world equals the atmosphere of normalized and celebrated disordered desires. That's what the root of what we're talking about. In all of these counterformational spiritual practices, the root of what we're talking about is reordering 
disordered desires to come under the alignment of Jesus so that we can actually live the fullest, most satisfying and thrilling life we could ever imagine. The lie we believe more than anything is that our way of meeting our desires will actually better fulfill us than surrendering and submitting those to Jesus. So these, uh, this atmosphere is carried by a jet stream of pop culture, social media, government, news, institutionalized higher education. These are the ways that it's traveling, just like the jet stream, just in the same way when you're up in an airplane and you're flying from here to Vancouver, it takes slightly longer to get to Vancouver. Why? Because the airplane is flying against the jet stream. The winds in the jet stream are hundreds of kilometers an hour and it's fighting the jet stream. That's why when you come back from out west here, it takes a little less time because the plane is flying with the jet stream. And there's a jet stream carrying these, uh, um, these social norms and ideologies and imperative beliefs all over the place. We can't see it, but it's at work. The German word for this is zeitgeist which means the defining spirit or mood of a particular period of history. So right now in our world, all around us, there's a particular mood and spirit that is pervading the earth. It's just a reality. It's the atmosphere we're breathing. It's the water we're swimming in. That's why it's so hard to grow spiritually because sometimes we can't distinguish What's oxygen and what's carbon dioxide? I can't smell the difference. I can't taste the difference. I know intellectually now I'm breathing out carbon dioxide, but I have no way of discerning. And so many of us are, are unmoored in our spiritual life because we have not kind of got up to 30,000 feet to uncover the truth about what is different in the kingdom of God from the prevailing narratives of the world around us. So what are some of those? I just wrote a few down. I'm gonna just cover them with you. This is a script. This is a script that comes across social and news and educational institutions and all of these areas. What's the script about marriage? The script today about marriage is that marriage is not a lifelong covenant of faithfulness. It's a contract meant for personal fulfillment. The script now is if your needs aren't being met by your married partner, that it's a contract that you gotta break because your needs are more important than covenant faithfulness. The script right now is my needs from you in this marriage are more important than what I give back to you. And so if my needs aren't being met, I'm gonna break the contract and find somebody else who can fulfill my needs and desires. The script right now for divorce is that it's actually an act of courage and authenticity rather than breaking vows. But you need to be true to yourself. You need to look out for your true authentic self. So if that gets violated in any way, then the, the, the bold and the honorable and the courageous thing to do is, is break the marriage because it's, it's hampering your ability to be true to yourself. The script for romance right now 
is that we should settle for nothing less than emotional happiness and sexual satisfaction. That is the, the North Star of relationships right now. That the, the, the center of my relationship is emotional happiness and sexual gratification. And if those needs aren't being met, then, then I have a free pass to walk out of that and find that somewhere else with someone else. That romance is about feeling and about happiness and about desire being fulfilled and gratified, whatever that desire is. What about authenticity? That's a big word today. Authenticity, the script right now, this, this atmosphere we're breathing is that our true self comes from within that our identity is shaped, our beliefs and our morality come from within us. And the only rule, the only rule is that it must resonate with who we really feel we are. So morality, identity, anything externally opposed to who I really believe I am in my true authentic self is seen as a threat and needs to be dismantled and pushed aside. My identity in our world's view, my identity is derived from who I feel I am and what I believe about myself. Scripture has a different story to paint with that. Jonathan Grant in his book, Divine Sex, um, which is a really great book. I actually highly recommend it for parents. So it's not about having sex per se. Um, When I bought that on Amazon, so I have a pastor friend of mine who um, I have accountability software on all of my, my phone, my laptop, my iPad. So everything that I keystroke in, he sees, um, which is amazing. So anyway, I bought this book, Divine Sex on Amazon. I got an email from him, like literally five minutes later, he's like, oh, that looks interesting. I said, yeah, <laughs> it's not what you think it is. Maybe I should have just gave you a heads up. So then when I was doing sort of research for this, I just, this week I said, hey, you're gonna get a bunch of red flags coming your way from like what I'm researching. Just know I'm not doing anything I shouldn't do. But this book, Divine Sex, the author Jonathan Grant says this. This is the narrative, the script of our world culture. The convictions of our culture now are this. The worst thing we can do is conform to some moral code that's imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It's deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. This quest, he says, is a sham. It seeks to make peace with our false self or more accurately, the self that is enmeshed in false desires. The reality is, is that your heart or my heart, your desires or my desires are not a trustworthy and accurate gauge of a life of fulfillment and flourishing. We're told it is, and that if we follow them wherever they lead us, that freedom and fulfillment will come, but it never does. Actually, bondage and imprisonment comes. What is another script? In our culture, commitment. Commitment is oppressive and it's a barrier to being free. Throw it off. 
Our, uh, more, more than ever, our culture is rejecting any form of commitment. Another one, personal freedom. We can only live well and truly be ourselves if we're free from outside influences. The script on truth, only accept what rings true to you in your inner self. This is epitomized in the phrase, my truth, as though somehow you are the arbiter of what truth is. But we're told that truth is in you and it's found within you, whatever that happens to be. The universe actually bows to your truth, makes way for it, that's what we're told. Abstinence, what is our world saying? Denial of desire is seen as stifling and repressive and harmful. The, idea, the very idea of abstinence is seen as a harm in our culture. Sex, my sexuality and sex are private and have no impact on those around me. What I do with my body has no impact on my heart or my soul. What I do in private with my body has no impact on anyone around me. That's what our culture says. Here's another way to word that. What you do alone, what you watch alone or imagine alone has no impact on your relationships or your heart. That's what culture says. You're just a primal animal with physical desires, instinctual drives for sexual release and gratification, and you can separate that from your true identity. You can separate that from your heart. You don't have to get enmeshed in that. that you can express yourself sexually any way you want, and it will have no impact on any part of the rest of your life. I wanna read you this quote from John Mayer. This is from Playboy Magazine, which I did not read to get this quote, just for clarity. This is from that book, Divine Sex. Um, there have probably been days when I saw 300 naked women before I got out of bed. Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to, this is my problem now, Mayor says. Rather than meet somebody new, I'd rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. I'm more comfortable now alone with my imagination than in the presence of another human being. What does our culture say about pornography? What's the script right now? What's the atmosphere? What is the air we're breathing in? You know, I read a stat yesterday or the day before. 96% of young adults believe there's absolutely nothing wrong with pornography. Pornography is now moved out of the like, you know, sort of fringe into the absolute mainstream of culture. Our script is that it's in, not inherently bad. It's good for exploring fantasies and can spice up your relationship. It is a healthy sexual outlet. That's what we're told. I, just a few weeks ago, I caught like a few minute excerpt from an interview with the singer Billy Eilish, right? Eilish, Eilish, Idol, I don't know. 
That's what I thought at first. Oh, Billy Idol, wow. That's not Billy Idol, okay? If you're over 35. I had no idea who she was. I had to actually go on Apple Music and Google it. Like, I had no idea who she was. She's a young superstar. This is what she said in an interview with Howard Stern, who I also don't recommend. So I, I caught this uh, in the Huffington Post. This is what she says. I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. I think she was 20. I started watching porn when I was like 11, said Elish, who turns 20 on Saturday. This is, I think, this year. I thought that's how you learned how to have sex. I was watching abusive porn, to be honest, when I was 14. I think it really destroyed my brain, and I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn, she continued attributing it to her sleep paralysis and night terrors. I just want to stop there for a minute. As far as I know, Billy Eilish does not have any interest in following Jesus. She's expressing a reality that you cannot separate what you do in your mind, in your imagination, what you do as you watch pornography with your body physically. Sleep paralysis is actually the physical uh, I, I don't even want to use the word sensation because it's more than that. It's the physical reality of being pinned to the bed. In deliverance ministry circles, this is actually a demonic activity where demons pin people to their bed and do things to them that is devastating and unholy. This young girl without even knowing it, is expressing the reality of opening this gateway to the demonic realm and its impact on her body physically. I want to continue on. We could go on with that, but I want to leave that there. She continues, or the article continues, her obsession with extreme content spiraled. I couldn't watch anything else unless it was violent. I didn't think it was attractive. There were consequences, she said. I was a virgin, Elish said, or Eilish said. I had never done anything, and so it led to problems. The first few times I had sex, I was not saying no to things that were not good. And it's because I thought that's what I was supposed to be attracted to. Listen how she ends. I'm so angry that porn is so loved. I caught a little bit of this other article like from Teen Vogue. I've never read Teen Vogue. Man, I went down some rabbit holes this week, some scary places. I think Teen Vogue was the scariest one. But I happened to read the Teen Vogue sex and dating columnist, Nona Willis Aronowitz, and her dissection of this Howard Stern interview. Here's how she ended her article. So remember what Billie Eilish has just said about the impacts to her body and her life. This is what the Teen Vogue sex and dating columnist said. Watching porn isn't inherently bad and can be a healthy sexual outlet for many people. Porn can be a great way to explore fantasies and stoke arousal and plenty of people watch porn with no adverse effects on their life. That is the toxic atmosphere and script of our world. That you can separate what you're watching, self-gratification, all kinds of stuff. You can separate that from having any impact on your heart or your life. 
And these are only a few of the ideas, the values, morals, practices, and social norms integrated into our mainstream right now. We're up at 30,000 feet, and this is the jet stream that causes the, uh, the environment we live in. The jet stream is what brings weather patterns and systems to the earth. They travel with the jet stream and the jet stream is bringing a torrent of destruction and death on our earth. And we're not even aware that it's working behind the scenes. We've now redefined what's good and what's evil. Isaiah said this, what sorrow awaits for those who say that evil is good and good is evil. The dark is light and the light is dark. That bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. I just wanna say with all humility and gentleness that this is happening in the Christian world and in the church right now. Under the weight and the pressure, the atmosphere that comes with our world's definition of sexuality, sexual boundaries, exploration, all of that stuff, the church is buckling. And the church is now beginning to redefine what scripture says about human sexuality. Redefine it to call evil good and permissible and affirmable by God. It's scary. It's, and I'm not saying that with judgment, I'm saying that with fear and trembling. That the church is bowing the knee to the pressure and formative weight of our culture as it relates to sexuality. And we think we're so clever. We think we're so clever that after thousands of years of church fathers and history, after Jesus affirming biblical sexuality and all scripture writers affirming the same thing, we think we're so clever now that we can intellectually and academically make a case for the reversal of God's heart on human sexuality and it's leading to destruction. You know, I was reading a book um, last night talking about this issue and the, the, the sort of the, the bait and trap of this is that the churches predominantly across the world who are shifting what is true and permissible by God in the area of sexuality, the, the hope is that young people would flock to them. We create a safe space for young people, but the reality is those churches are being gutted at a greater rate than churches that affirm a historical biblical sexuality. Young people care nothing about your church if it's affirming or not. They actually, they're craving a deeper desire and a bigger need being met. They're craving the transformative power of God, not just the embodiment of what the world says is good for us and adding a Christian sticker and label to it. There's no authority in that. There's no transformative power in that. There's no difference in that. And yet we are in a spot where it's becoming theologically and doctrinally imperative that we call evil good and good evil. But Jesus calls us to a counterformed life.
He has his own set of values and ideas and morals and practices that are actually meant for human flourishing. You can read the Sermon on the Mount. That Je- that's Jesus's counterformed message. He says here, you have heard the commandment, Matthew 5, that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in her heart. What is he saying? He's saying you're not just a primal animal with sexual urges that can be satisfied without impacting your heart. Your sex drive, your physical body and its gratification cannot be disconnected from the realities of the heart. Jesus is pointing to a reality that the desire of God actually lies in the heart, not just in teaching us and and demanding and dictating, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. No, he wants to transform our desires. So sexual desire is expressed outside of the boundaries of God. And again, I'm just saying this with humility and fear and reverence. The boundaries that are consistent with scripture for human sexuality is one man and one woman in covenant marriage relationship. End of story. That's what it is. Here's our trouble is we're breathing an atmosphere around us that tells us otherwise. But also we've believed this lie that that God is trying to withhold something good from us. That he creates this boundary to punish us. That he creates this boundary like that, that, that he doesn't want you to experience the fullest joy and fulfillment in life possible. That he wants you to kind of grit your teeth, use all of the willpower you can and just grind it out as this halfling person. That's not the heart of God. Again, Jonathan Grant says this, the gospel envisions the sort of life that ultimately leads to flourishing. Get this, this is what he says. Sin is destructive because it undermines the good that God has for us. He creates boundaries in our sexual lives, not to withhold something good from us, but to give us boundaries that will actually help us to flourish, be more fulfilled, be more satisfied, experience greater joy and pleasure than when we violate the boundaries. But often we believe that he's withholding forbidden candy, (laughs) like a cruel father. That's not the heart of God. So chastity, I'll give you a quick definition, is living faithfully in singleness and marriage. I've added some greater context here. Living faithfully encourages what you do emotionally. It's not just about, hey, I haven't had an affair before. It involves your emotional life. Living faithfully involves what you do with your own body, self-pleasure. Living faithfully involves what you watch. Living faithfully in singleness and in marriage involves what you say or text to someone else. Living faithfully involves what you allow your mind to fantasize about. Living faithfully in singleness and marriage involves all of these areas. And the practice of chastity is not to make you miserable. 
It's not an oppressive denial that is designed to destroy desire and feeling in your life. It's actually about reordering and redirecting disordered desire so that we can experience them in their fullness. Chastity is not the abandonment of human feeling and desire. It's redeemed desire. It's trusting in a good father who knows things you don't know and sees things you can't see, has wisdom about your life and your body and your relationships that you don't have, who's created healthy boundaries for you so that you can thrive. Our struggle is that we think we know better often. So this practice of chastity brings us into an experiential engagement with God in our life. Here's a couple more things just to leave with you. The script of our culture says that freedom is my ability to choose to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, however I want to do it. And that that essence of life is the pathway to self-actualization and fulfillment and purpose. That's what our culture says. Jesus has a counterforming narrative. What Jesus says is actually to experience the very fullest of life, the, the deepest satisfaction, the, the most intense feeling and desire is to lay down your life and surrender it. Luke 9, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? So this practice of chastity counters our culture by saying a few things. I am more than my sexual urges. I'm not sure why I wrote R, but I have finished grade four grammar. So I am more than my sexual urges. That's what in practicing chastity, faithfulness and singleness and in marriage says that I'm more than my sexual urges. Our sexual lives are included as part of our being. They're a part of what Jesus asks us to surrender. So again, in our, like, let's pull up the pervading sort of very strong pull right now, even in the Christian world, is that you can surrender your life to Jesus, but your sex life is off limits. You can surrender your life to Jesus, but what you do sexually is not a part of the equation. We have this belief actually, that I can be walking in faithfulness to Jesus, but demand that he leave me alone in that area. That what I choose to do sexually is my choice and is not part of his invitation to lay down my life and surrender. That's a problem. The second thing this practice of chastity says is that my desires are not Lord and ruler of my life. That my desires are not the North Star that I drive everything to in my life. There are greater things in life than what I desire in the moment. 
Third thing, my life and my body have great worth. Chastity confronts the idea that our bodies are just a piece of meat to be used for our pleasure or someone else's gratification. I'll never forget being in a red light district in Calcutta, India. Probably the most disgusting and vile and dark place I have ever walked in my life. And I've been in others that would compare. But this whole brothel area in India was filled with thousands of women who lived in like a six by eight, basically cell and gave their bodies to men day after day after day, just so they could have food on the table. There was nothing sexy and gratifying about that. There was no pleasure involved in that. There was no fulfillment or satisfaction involved in that. And the word of God, Jesus says, you're worth more than that. Your life is worth so much more than to just give your body away or to self-gratify over and over and over. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you. You've been created for a purpose. You've got more in you than what the world tells you. It just says your body's expendable, that you can engage in hookup culture and trade sex partners. What do they call it now? Serial monogamy. I can just go from partner to partner to partner. And somehow that's not going to affect my life. And God says, I've made you more beautiful than that, more powerful than that. I've given you a greater purpose than to just give your body away to gratification for yourself or someone else. When we practice chastity, we say that my body has worth. My life means something. And lastly, it's not defined by what happens in this moment. I'm going to invite Liz just to come up. If we're going to be counterformed into the image of Jesus, we need to get a greater vision, his vision for our life that is more than your sexual urges and desire. That's more than... uh, the needs of your body that's more than what culture says. The problem we have in church is that we've reduced walking with Jesus to this lowest common denominator of doctrinal affiliation with Jesus so we can go to heaven. And for the vast majority of people, that means almost nothing. Has no impact on their everyday life. First thing we need to recalibrate on is Jesus' vision for our life which is not about just not sinning. Jesus's vision for our life is a life lived to the fullest. And it begins with his desire to save and redeem. This is the very beginning part of Jesus's vision. This is what he came to the earth to declare, I have come to seek and to save the lost. But he wasn't talking about just theological agreement with him that he's the son of God. See, when scripture talks about salvation and redemption, it's a much broader thing. What Jesus meant when he said, I come to seek and save the lost. 
is that I've came to deliver you now, to set you free. I've came to heal you and restore you. I've come to renew you. I've come to rewire the broken bits of you. I've come to bring fullness and restoration and wholeness to your life. What Jesus means by salvation is I've come to restore your sexual past the decisions you've made or the things that have been done to you. I've come to deliver you from the bondage you're experiencing because of things that you've done or things that have been done to you. I've come to save you. I've come to deliver you from the stuff you're living in in this moment. I've come to deliver you from the the temptation that you, you can't seem to overcome. I've come to heal the wounds that you carry, the brokenness in your heart that that is so present when you're laying on your bed at night and everything else has faded away and you're left with this brokenness in your life. Jesus says, my saving and redeeming is to heal that and restore that, not sometime later, but now I wanna give you a new life. I want to renew you. I wanna call you up out of the stuff that you've been living in. I wanna call you to something greater and I can bring you the greatest fulfillment and the most whole life that you could ever imagine. That's the saving and redeeming initiative of Jesus, not just a ticket to heaven, but life now lived before God and before others, fully free of the shackles and the chains of our sexual past and history and present and future. That's the gospel message of the saving and redeeming work of Jesus for our life. Salvation, as Jesus uses it, means to be set free. Just imagine that for a moment. A life free from the baggage and the trauma and the torment. Free from the guilt and the shame and the self-condemnation. Can you imagine what that would feel like? You and I are chasing every desire and fantasy because we believe the lie that that's the one, that's the person or that's the thing that's gonna give me fulfillment. And Jesus says, no, I'm here to do it and I can do it and I wanna do it. I wanna look at the broken ugliness of your life. I'm not repulsed by it. I'm not disgusted by it. I'm not intimidated by it. I see it for what it is and I see you for who I've made you to be and I can set you free now. I can make you whole and healed and deliver you. Salvation is the power of Jesus to heal you, deliver you, and set you free now. Set you free from your past, the things you'd like to take back, the things that have happened to you. You don't have to carry those. You don't have to walk with a limp and baggage. You don't have to worry about when the shoe is gonna drop, when somebody's gonna find out what you're doing in secret and in private. He wants to set you free from that. What do we need to do then? How do we respond to that? We have to give up trying to set ourselves free.
to self-medicate with pornography because we've got this longing in our heart that we can't find satisfaction for. We need to let go and surrender our desire to fix ourselves, to try and solve our problems or bring healing to our own lives. We need to lay that down and say, Jesus, I'm done trying to cover my tracks and to fix up my wrongs and to heal my brokenness. I need you to do it. And the vision that he has for the kingdom of God is that he comes and he begins that work right away. I wanna just invite you to close your eyes as we just end here. I know we've gone longer, but man, this is, this has caused so much devastation in my own life, in my own family. I could tell you stories for hours about the cost of this area. And some of you here today, you feel that you've done things sexually that are forcing God to look at you with disgrace and disgust and anger. You're reviewing the tape of your life and even maybe the present day and you're going, God is just, he's disgusted with me. How could he ever look at me? And some of you are carrying shame that you can't bear and it's crippling you. Condemnation that's crippling you from choices you've made or things that have been done to you. And some of you are convinced this morning that you are dirty and unlovable by God that somehow you've crossed this line that God cannot reach into. Some of you today, because you feel this way, you can't allow God to love you because you feel so dirty and ashamed. You, your instinct is, is to pull away from him. And he says, I've come to save and redeem you. And I'm the only one that can heal and restore your life. His invitation is to let him work in the areas of your sexual brokenness. Not because he wants to punish you or remind you of how weak you are or how evil you are because he wants to renew and heal and restore. Students, God has a purpose for your life that's so much greater than internet pornography or hooking up. He's got a vision for your life that will bring you more fulfillment than any of that. I wonder today if you would be willing to say, Jesus, I give up trying to be the savior of my own brokenness and my problems. Let me just pray. Father, we, I don't even know what to say anymore. You, I'm just asking spirit of God for your ministry here. For those here who feel like they cannot be loved by God, breakthrough. 
for those caught in a trap of addiction and guilt and shame and condemnation. Jesus, would you demonstrate your faithfulness and your goodness, your, your passion for them. Father, in this area of our human sexuality, I, I pray for, for wholeness, redemption and renewal, for deliverance and freedom so that we can be the kinds of men and women that you've designed us to be. Amen. I want to encourage you. My heart for you leaving here is that you would just get a glimpse of the vision of Jesus for your life to bring restoration to broken areas. That there's nothing in your past or present or could happen in your future that is outside of his ability to redeem and restore your life, your marriage, your family. I want you to walk out of here knowing how deeply loved you are and how valuable you are to Jesus. And that he would stop at nothing to walk with you into the fullest, most satisfying, whole and renewed life you could ever dream of. It is there. And all we need to do is partner with him. If you're a woman here and you have experienced brokenness in this area, uh, I want to encourage you to reach out. You can email Pastor Brenda, brenda at mp.church. This is why we're here. If you're a guy, email me, andrew at mp.church. We are here not to stand in judgment over you, but to walk with you into the life that Jesus has envisioned for you. And it's possible. It is, I'm a living testimony that it is possible to walk in freedom and in victory and in fulfillment because of the work of Jesus. So don't sit in silence or in darkness. Come into the light and experience all of the goodness of God in your life. Reach out to us. He's teaching us how to walk with each other in that as a whole church. I want to encourage you with hope as you leave uh, today.